Though not of this world, we as kingdom citizens are expected to practice our righteousness in the world. As such, in Matthew 6, 1, Jesus set forth a principle for doing righteous deeds. And that principle is this, do not practice your righteous deeds to receive people's attention, applause, or adulation. If you're performing a righteous deed for anything other than God's glory, you are a self-righteous hypocrite or religious actor. In other words, you're putting on a righteous performance to bring attention solely to yourself. Now, determining whether someone's righteous deed is genuine or hypocritical comes down to their motivation. While motivation is often difficult to discern, it's not impossible. So to determine someone's motivation, you have to be willing to confront them about the practice of their righteous deed. And upon confronting them, if they respond with humility and understanding, hey, their motive was altruistic and inadvertently they drew attention to themselves. But if they react with Christian jargonese and they try to defend themselves, then I'm afraid you're dealing with a pharisaical hypocrite. Furthermore, Jesus hammers home the danger of having wrong motives in the practice of your righteous deeds. He says that those who practice righteousness for people's praise forfeit their heavenly rewards. And this forfeiture of reward underscores Jesus' admonishment in Matthew 5.20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now notably, Jesus addresses three different righteous deeds that are often motivated by self-centered desires for the applaud and adulation of people. He first addressed the issue of giving to the poor, Matthew 6, 2-4. And basically, when giving to those in need, were to do it privately and secretly. Next, Jesus addressed the issue of prayer, Matthew 6, 5-15. Prayer must not be made for the people's praise, but privately, and must be distinct from pagan prayer. As well, he underscored the fact that prayer must be more than repetitious words and mechanical formulaic phrases. And now here in Matthew 6, 16-18, Jesus addresses the third righteous deed, the issue of fasting and the kingdom citizen. Fasting and the kingdom citizen. Fasting is the most misunderstood righteous deed amongst Christianity at large. Responses to fasting include an outright refusal on one end of the spectrum to engaging in fasting as a meaningless act of religious piety on the other end. Even amongst evangelical Christians, fasting is often brushed under the rug, while at the same time practicing giving and praying. Now Jesus begins addressing this issue of fasting in the kingdom citizen by censuring improper fasting in verse 16. Censuring improper fasting, Matthew 6, 16. Let's read it. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face, as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance, so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now again, Jesus is censuring improper fasting. Now the verb fast, nestuo, refers to the occasional abstinence from food for a set time. According to the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, fasting is, quote, an act of sincere self-renunciation and submission to God. Now the purpose of fasting is to bring our body into subjection to the Holy Spirit and to demonstrate the sincerity of our prayer before God. Bringing the body into subjection to the Spirit requires self-control and self-discipline. 
To that end, Paul admonishes us in 1 Corinthians 9, 25-27, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. I discipline my body and make it my slave. Now let's note here that Paul is not teaching masochism or the inflecting of pain for pleasure. Nor is he teaching asceticism, the denial of all pleasures or luxuries. He is referring to the voluntary and temporary abstinence from food or other pleasures. The self-control and self-discipline manifested in fasting are means by which we underscore the sincerity and seriousness of our prayers to God. Though fasting is usually associated with abstaining from food, it can apply to other practices of self-discipline. For example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. In this context, Paul addresses sexual intimacy between husbands and wives. He explains that spouses should not deny one another sexual intimacy, except by agreement for a time, to devote themselves to prayer. In other words, married couples can agree to set a time aside to fast from intercourse, to pray for a particular issue. As an aside, those not married cannot claim sexual abstinence as a fast. Now, fasting is often assumed to be strictly an Old Testament practice. Leviticus 23.32 commands that on the Day of Atonement, the people shall humble your souls. The term humble, hana, means to afflict and refers to the practice of fasting. Furthermore, some quote Luke 5.33, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink, as proof that Jesus abrogated the practice of fasting. Furthermore, fasting is also associated with Roman Catholicism and is rejected as purely a Romanistic practice. While fasting is an Old Testament practice, a practice of the Pharisees, and a practice of the Roman Catholic Church that does not hinder modern evangelical Christians from fasting. Consider some biblical facts with me, please. Fact 1. Before formally beginning his earthly ministry, Jesus fasted 40 days and nights in the wilderness. Matthew 4.2 And while there is no scriptural command to fast, Jesus' example is one to follow. Ephesians 5.1 Therefore be imitators of God. 1 John 2.6 The one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. Fact 2. In the context of Luke 5.33, Jesus does not annul or abrogate the practice of fasting. He explained why the disciples were not currently fasting with a question. Jesus says in Luke 5.34, You cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? Now the bridegroom here was Jesus Christ, and the attendants are the disciples. Jesus' meaning is that as long as Jesus was with them, the disciples had no reason to fast or mourn. However, take note of what Jesus says next. In Luke 5.35, Jesus says, But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Jesus refers to when he would no longer be present on earth. He speaks of the period after his ascension in heaven and before his return to earth. Hence, Jesus' point is that after his return to heaven, fasting will be appropriate for his followers. Since believers live in those days, fasting is still a righteous deed in which we should engage. Fact 3. Notice the phrase whenever you fast in Matthew 6.16. The term whenever, hatan, takes for granted that believers fast. Jesus knows nothing of believers who do not fast. 
The usual practice of kingdom citizens is temporarily abstaining from food or something else as a means of discipline and a demonstration of prayer's sincerity. Now, regarding the practice of fasting, there is nothing in Scripture demanding its frequency or its duration. Typically, fasting lasted one day from morning until evening, Judges 20.26. They remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. 2 Samuel 1.12, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening. However, there are fasts recorded in Scripture that lasted longer than a day. Esther decreed a fast commanding the people do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Esther 4.16 When Saul was killed, David and the people fasted seven days. 1 Samuel 31.13 What is clear is that fasting is enjoined to times of prayer. As well, Scripture is filled with several examples of when fasting is appropriate. Fasting is appropriate in times of repentance, in times of grief, for justice, for divine protection, during times of spiritual warfare, and when seeking to discern God's will and word. In each example, those fasting abstain from food, and perhaps other distractions, to seek God's blessing. Believers may fast during times of repentance over sin. According to Nehemiah 9, 1-2, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. As well, Jonah 3, 5-8 records, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast. The king issued a proclamation, Do not let them eat or drink water, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way, so that God may turn and relent, and withdraw his burning anger, so that we will not perish. It is appropriate, and sometimes necessary, to demonstrate to God the depth of our mourning over sin with fasting. Believers may fast during times of repentance over sin. Believers may fast during times of grief. When David's child died, 2 Samuel 12, 16 reports that he inquired of God for the child and fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. Mourning the loss of a loved one, a believer may fast and pray that God would ease their pain and give them peace. In Daniel 9, 3, grieving over the sin of his people, Daniel records, quote, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting. Enjoining fasting to your prayers and supplication over someone else's sin demonstrates urgency to God. It communicates the depths of grief and anguish that you're experiencing over a friend or family member who is sinning. Believers, it is appropriate to fast during times of grief, whether grief over loss or grief over sin. Believers, we may fast for justice to be accomplished. In Isaiah 58 and verse 6, the prophet declared, Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Believers, we are quick to pray for the oppressed and even give to ease the needs of the oppressed. It is, is it enough, though, to pray and to give? Perhaps not. Since God admonishes us here, to also fast on behalf of those suffering injustice. It's easy to pray. It's easy to give out of our excess. But the sincerity and seriousness of our concern for the needs of others becomes genuine before a holy God when we are willing to abstain from meeting our own needs to meet the needs of others. 
Again, believers, we may fast for justice to be accomplished. We also, as believers, we may fast to request God's protection. In 2 Chronicles 21, 3-4, facing the threat of the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Munites, King Jehoshaphat, quote, was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah to seek help from the Lord. Determining to intercede before the king on behalf of her people, in Esther 4.16, Queen Esther urged the Jews to fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Friends, the world is sin-cursed, and as such it is a dangerous place. It behooves us to cry out to God for protection. And when believers fast while praying for protection, you are showing God that your need for protection is greater than your need for daily provisions. Again, we may fast to request God's protection. Believers, we also may fast during times of spiritual warfare. On a particular occasion, a father came to Jesus to help his child who was demon-possessed. Jesus healed the child and cast out the demon. When the disciples revealed that they could not help the child, Jesus revealed to them that victory over demonic forces does not occur except by prayer and fasting. Matthew 17, 21. In a day when our children are being exposed to the influences of illicit drugs and the LGBTQ agenda, parents are wrestling with demons. Victory over such influences only comes by prayer and fasting. We need to fast during times of spiritual warfare. Believers, we may fast during times of discerning God's will and word. Daniel 10.3 records how seeking to understand God's revelation, Daniel did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter his mouth until the entire three weeks were completed. Understanding scripture, friends, is difficult and requires much prayer. However, when your prayer seems insufficient, fast, which will demonstrate to God how great your desire is to understand his word. The church leaders fasted before ordaining and appointing elders. According to Acts 14.23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Also, before commissioning and sending out missionaries, the leaders fasted. Acts 13.2-3 records, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, They sent them away. Ordaining elders and sending missionaries is a serious task that must only be undertaken with the greatest of care. And such tasks are too great to simply throw up a prayer to heaven. Pray earnestly, and if led by the Spirit, fast to demonstrate to God your desire to have His will accomplished. Now friends, returning to the thrust of Jesus' censure of improper fasting, notice He addresses hypocritical fasting. The issue of hypocritical fasting was not new, as it was an issue in Isaiah's day. Speaking through Isaiah, Yahweh condemned Israel's fast. He said in Isaiah 53, 3-4, Behold, on the day of your fast you find your desire, and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife, and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. See, their fasting was hypocritical because it was motivated by a desire for personal pleasure. It was hypocritical because they were oppressing their workers. Their fasting was hypocritical because it was driven by contention, strife, and a desire for revenge. 
They thought that by fasting, God would see their sincerity in seeking revenge against another person and take up their cause. And finally, their fasting was hypocritical because they were not doing it to commend themselves to God. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of hypocritical fasting and gives two warnings. First, he warns, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. Again, a hypocrite, hypocrites, is someone who acts in the theater. However, Jesus used this term hypocrite to refer to the Pharisees and in so doing accuses them of acting religious to garner people's attention, applause, and adulation. According to Luke 18.12, the Pharisees took pride in fasting twice a week. The Didache, an ecclesiastical writing from the close of the first century, reveals that Mondays and Thursdays were the two days that the Pharisees fasted. Now when it comes to fasting, the Pharisees put on an act with their gloomy face. Note that they put on, ginomai, a gloomy face. That verb put on means to assume a certain state or condition. And it also invokes a bit of wordplay. The hypocrite or actors in theaters often put on masks over their faces to play a part. Here, when fasting, the Pharisees put on a mask of a gloomy face or sad countenance. In essence, their fasting is written all over their face. One look at their face and everybody knew they were fasting. Second, Jesus warns they neglect their appearance. The verb neglect, aphanizo, in the context refers to being unclean or unkept. Now, normally before appearing in public, people would put on fresh clothes, anoint their head with oil to prevent dry scalp, and wash their faces. Men in particular would also trim their beards. But during times of fasting, the Pharisees chose to forgo normal hygienic practices. It appeared that besides fasting from food, they also fasted from wearing clean clothes, treating their scalps with oil, washing their faces, and trimming their beards. Jesus reveals that they put on the sad face and they neglect normal hygienic functions, so they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. The verb noticed, phaneo, means to shine a light on or bring attention to something. In other words, they look sad, they ignored their daily hygiene to bring attention to the fact that they were fasting. To those bringing attention to their fasting, Jesus says they have the reward in full. The term reward, misthos, refers to credit or benefit. The verb fool, apeko, a business term used in transactions to convey a receipt has been given for payment received in full. His, Jesus' point is here that the attention they receive from people, the applause, the adulation, is all the reward, all the credit they're going to get. There is no future reward or heavenly benefit owed to their supposed righteous deed. Now, whereas Jesus censured improper fasting, now in Matthew 6, 17 to 18, he commends proper fasting. Commending proper fasting. Matthew 6, 17 to 18. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, Jesus is commending proper fasting. Now he begins with the contrast of conjunction, but. In other words, Jesus' censure was not his final word on fasting. He has more to say on the issue. As well, he again says, when you fast. The term when, hotan, takes for granted that believers are fasting. Notice that Jesus provides two conditions for proper fasting. First, he says, anoint your head. The verb anoint, alepho, 
refers to placing oil upon one's skin. Now here the oil was rubbed into the scalp to prevent dry scalp, a common malady in the Mediterranean world. As well, the phrase also implies the idea of rubbing perfume upon oneself to cover body odor. Second, Jesus says, wash your face. The verb wash, nipto, means to cleanse. In other words, Jesus is not referring to simply splashing water upon your face, but cleansing it or purifying it. The point of these two conditions is that believers should tend to their daily hygiene so to cover any outward signs of fasting. Next, Jesus provides three reasons for these two conditions. First, we must fast in such a way so that our fasting will not be noticed by men. Again, the verb noticed, phineo, means to shine a light on or bring attention to something. When we fast, we should do nothing that would bring attention to the fact that we are fasting. That said, when the Pharisees questioned Jesus about his disciples' lack of fasting, Jesus could have retorted, how do you know they're not fasting? Appearances can be deceptive. Second, we must fast in such a way that only our Father who is in secret will see it. Now, the use of the title Father for God implies the intimacy of relationship that exists between the king and his kingdom citizens. The term secret, krypheos, means to be concealed or hidden from all persons except those involved. And that phrase, who is in secret, implies that God is in his secret place. That place is where he dwells, heaven. God the Father is hidden in heaven from all except those who come to him. Previously, Jesus said, pray to your Father who is in secret. In the same way, prayer is to be between God and the prayee, so too fasting should be between God and the one fasting. Just as prayer is not a public performance, so too fasting should not be a performance for people's attention, applause, or adulation. Third, when believers, when we privately fast, the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward us. As in Matthew 6, 4 and 6, the verb reward, epitome, means to repay or restore. And the use of the future tense of this reward guarantees that those who fast in secret will be rewarded. Folks, fasting is to be done in such a way that it does not draw attention to yourself. Fasting is a matter of self-control and self-discipline. Note that the, the key word is self. In other words, you should keep your fasting to yourself. As well, the motive for your fasting should be to express humility before God and concern for others. While there is no scriptural command to fast, Jesus nonetheless calls it an act of righteousness. Because there is not a command to fast, fasting is a righteous practice that goes above and beyond the law. Hence, by fasting properly, we are performing righteous deeds that go beyond the Pharisees. As Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Though not mandated, fasting is still a righteous practice that we ought to undertake, especially because in fasting we follow Jesus' example. However, and here we please pay attention, we as believers must guard against its abuse. Fasting must be done with the right motivation. It should never be done in an effort to manipulate God to fulfill your selfish desires. As well, Fasting must be done in a manner that keeps it private and secret. I challenge you, believer, to heed God's warning about improper fasting, as stated in Jeremiah 14:12. When they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. 
And when they offer burnt offering and grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. Rather, I am going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. See, my friend, if you fast in an improper manner, you can expect three things. One, expect that God will turn a deaf ear to your prayers. Two, expect that God will not accept your sacrifices. And three, expect that God will judge the guilty. Now, folks, the early church took Jesus' admonition against hypocritical fasting so serious that they urged believers not to even fast on the same day as the Pharisees. According to Didache 8.1, Let not your fast be done with the hypocrites, for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week, Monday and Thursday, but do your fast on the fourth day, Wednesday, and the preparation day, Friday. Now, while the early church's admonition about fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays does not apply today because the culture has changed, the wisdom behind the admonition is still applicable. Let's take a moment and consider the celebration of Lent. Anglican, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, Methodist, Reformed, and Roman Catholic churches practice Lent in commemoration of Jesus' 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. The celebration of Lent is at best a misunderstanding of the practice of fasting. At worst, Lent is a deliberate rejection of Jesus' admonishment. Now, Lent begins with Ash Wednesday, marked as a day of prayer and fasting. On this day, priests and ministers place quote-unquote repentance ashes upon the forehead of their followers. Usually as the ashes are placed upon the forehead, the priest or minister says, Repent and believe the gospel, or remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. During the season of Lent, participants are required to fast or abstain from something. Now, several issues arise with the practice of Lent. First, there is no biblical command to commemorate Jesus' 40 days of fasting. I'll say it again. There is no biblical command to commemorate Jesus' 40 days of fasting. That's it. There's nothing wrong with you as a believer following Jesus' example. As a believer, you are free to fast as led by the Holy Spirit. However, listen carefully. There is a significant difference between following Jesus' example and some church mandating believers to commemorate his 40-day fast. Big difference. Again, there's no biblical command. Second, the practice of Lent did not develop until 350. Again, the practice of Lent did not develop until around A.D. 350. As such, it is a completely fabricated, quote-unquote, holy day that is nothing more than a tradition learned by root. It is nothing more than a tradition learned by root. In Isaiah 29:13 Yahweh declared that this people draw near me with their words and honor me with their lip service but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. God is displeased with any form of worship that is nothing more than tradition learned by rote. Remember just because you invoke phrases like repent and believe the gospel or remember that you're dust and to dust you shall return may sound biblical but they are nothing more than lip service and meaningless repetition. Third, the practice of Lent 
particularly Ash Wednesday, is a clear violation of Jesus' admonishment to fast in secret. Again, the practice of Lent is a clear violation of Jesus' admonishment to fast in secret. On Ash Wednesday, participants have ashes placed on their foreheads to signify the beginning of their 40-day fast. Jesus clearly stated that when you fast, you are not to make it known. Whenever you fast, do not do it to be noticed by men. And furthermore, he says, wash your face. You see, for walking around with ashes on your forehead doesn't make you repentant. But it does place you in a position of needing to repent of sinning against Jesus' commands. Walking around with ashes on your head or taking part in any other external empty ritual is pharisaical hypocrisy. That people ignore Jesus' clear commands demonstrates what Jesus says in Matthew 15, 7-9. You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. My friends, fasting is a matter of personal discretion as an act of self-renunciation and submission to God. In times of repentance, believers, you can fast. In times of grief, you can fast. When seeking justice, you can fast. When seeking to understand God's word and will, you can fast. Also during times of spiritual warfare, you can fast. As stated, Scripture does not mandate the frequency or the duration. Scripture does mandate, however, that fasting is to be done quietly, secretly, and without fanfare. Additionally, fasting is not limited only to food. A believer may choose to abstain from something else. Someone who does not have enough food for their daily provisions is not expected to fast from food. As well, someone who has a medical issue related to their diet should use extreme caution regarding abstaining from food. Again, there are other practices that can be abstained from if one is so led by the Holy Spirit. The key is temporarily abstaining from something typically done or enjoyed for the purpose of self-control and self-discipline to demonstrate to God the sincerity and seriousness of your prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne of grace because of the high priestly ministry of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for your grace and mercy that you shower upon us daily. As our King, we come in submission to you. We desire to obey you and ask that your Spirit will work within us to enable us to do your will. Our flesh is weak, and so we need your Spirit to prick us and prod us. Father, forgive us for not praying as we ought. Forgive us for not controlling and disciplining ourselves, especially when we pray. Father, we thank you for watching over us. Guard us from the devil. Keep us safe in your arms. And may all the praise and glory be given to you. Amen.